Just grabbing hold of that line. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. There's a line that begs for grace, isn't it? I wondered if, if, if you, just within yourself, would, would admit, admit with me that we, we bump into that. We live there. That, that, at times, is the cry of our own heart. Lord, I see myself. I, 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 perhaps I, I, I wake up in terms of what I've been doing, and I look, something I said, something I did, and I say, Lord, I cannot keep myself from sin. I desperately need your grace. Or maybe it's the, the things churning around inside our minds that remind us of what is churning around inside our heart, and we say, oh, God, I am in desperate need of your grace. But God's grace is not a guilt thing. God's grace is a refreshing. It's a freeing thing. In fact, this the uh, the place where we are in God's word to, uh, in God's word this morning, the book of Titus, and I'll have to explain why we're in Titus this morning, but the book of Titus is a book that it, it, it shows us more than anything else. It shows us the relationship of God's grace to the Christian life, God's grace to my daily life and practice, God's grace, what he has done for me, to what it is, how I live and move and breathe in him. Why the book of Titus? We're going through the Bible. We're going book by book, a book a week. Some shorter books like Titus, it's a little easier. Some bigger books like Isaiah, it's been a, big of a, it's been a bit of a stretch. But uh, we're going week by week wanting to get that overview. Well, we just had 1 Timothy last week, and so you thought, well, I thought that 2 Timothy comes after 1 Timothy, but I had I, forgotten my own schedule. My own schedule called for Titus to come before 2 Timothy because 2 Timothy is Paul's last book. It's his swan song, so to speak. It's his, it's his passing the torch, handing off the baton to Timothy. And there are some last words things that we don't want to miss, but it wouldn't be any good to do Paul's last words and then go along and have one more letter from Paul, would it? That would just confuse everything. So we've got to back up. We've got to, we've got to do Titus first. That's why I'd planned it that way. I just forgot. And we need to, to see what Titus has to say to us, and then we'll come along to Second Timothy. So that's where we are. And, and, as, and as you look in your Bible, you say, well, we, we're going to finish this book this year. We're going to go all, have gone all the way through the Bible by the time we get to the end of this year. Yes, we will. But that'll be by God's grace, and that's what the book of Titus is all about. Now, First Timothy, when, when, when Pastor Ryan did First Timothy last week, he talked about three images that are in Timothy that... Timothy describes the local church as a family of God, the household of God, as a unique assembly of the unique God. This is a special people of the special only true God. And a local church, a gathering of believers, is the pillar and support of the truth. And Ryan especially focused on that last image, and he especially talked about how we hold up the truth how we lift up the truth in, in contrast to the lies and the voices that we hear around us. I want to I take another, I want to grab hold of that same image that Ryan was using last week and carry it a little further. That pillar in support of the truth, that pillar 
of the truth, which a church is, is a proclamational pillar. It is a carved pillar. It's a, it's a pillar that's been engraved with images that tell a story. The message or the event that the pillar is meant to commemorate and to remember is, is a pillar that has been marked by the message it seeks to portray. It's not unlike this table. The reason that the fruit of the vine, whether, whether it's red wine or red grape juice, is used, it's not because we're partial to grapes. We don't use white grape juice. Only red. And the reason for that is it reminds us of the blood of Christ. It, and, and the blood is, is the, the fullness of his death. His life's blood was poured out. The Son of God died a full and real human death for us in our place. And we, we, we commemorate that, we celebrate that, we don't just talk about it, but there's an, there's an event that we participate in where we each receive that individually. Because the salvation of God in Christ is only received individually, right? That's a proclamational act, it's an acting out, it's a, both a show and tell. And the Christian life is like that, a church is like that. A church as a proclamational pillar marked by our message then must be a church. If our message is grace... If our message is the grace of God, then a church marked by that message must be a church that displays grace. We, above everything else, must be a people who are marked by, who are known by, who live out grace. I've entitled this book, Titus, Grace Works. Grace Works. If you think of the book of James, you probably think of faith and works. You probably think, I'll probably use the title, Faith Works. We'll be in James in not too many weeks. And I'll probably pull that back up because you have this big discussion about what does faith look like lived out in real life. Grace is like that. God's grace looks like something in life. God's grace is to characterize God's people because God is a gracious God and God's grace characterizes him. So if we're going to live godly lives in Christ Jesus, what are they going to be? They're going to be lives of grace. That's the book of Titus in a nutshell. Really, we're done then, but oh, the kids are going to be gone for a while still. Let's keep going. All right. Introduction. In, introducing the book of Titus. Now, Titus and Timothy are written roughly about the same time in between Paul's first and second imprisonment. For, for, for the first imprisonment, he's, a, he's at least two years imprisoned in Rome. The, book of, the end of the book of Acts tells us that. And then apparently he's released. At, even as he expected, he told Philemon he expected to be released, and he was. He told the Philippians he expected to be released. He apparently was. He traveled further, probably as far as Spain. And then as he's making a loop through uh, Asia Minor and back around to Corinth, Athens. In that loop, in the midst of that loop, he's arrested again. And it's after that arrest and in that imprisonment, he's not under house arrest now, he's in a dungeon. And it's from there that he writes Second Timothy, awaiting his martyrdom, awaiting his execution. So Titus is written, in the meantime, strengthening the churches. And he gives us a couple of introductory verses in Titus chapter 1, the first two verses. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages begin, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching which I have been entrusted by the command of our God and Savior. So his apostleship, the purpose of his ministry, is for faith, confidence in, believing in what God has done in Christ, 
talked about that before, and hope of, of what God will yet do. The hope for what we, the fullness we don't yet see. So we live in between faith and hope. We live in, in faith, confidence in what God has done, and in hope, a confident expectation of what God will do. In 1 Thessalonians, that was expressed as faith, love, and hope. Love emphasized in the present. In this book, he's, emphasized, he's emphasizing a, a, a life that accords with the, or, or, or truth and godliness in accord or in agreement. That the truth of God and his grace agrees with our life, or rather my life agrees with God's truth and God's grace. The faith in, in what God has done, hope, anticipating what God will do, even as we celebrate this table, we proclaim the Lord's death, past, until he comes, future, we live in between. In this mere moment, in between. And we live yet as that song so well expressed, by grace. Oh God, take my heart and seal it. Seal it for your courts above, that expectation. How then do we live by grace? We're told three things in this, in this book, and I'll go chapter by chapter. Chapter 1, we are told to live by grace. Chapter 2, we are told to then live out grace. Chapter 3, we are told to speak with grace. He narrows the focus down to what we say. First of all, live by grace. We have life by grace, except nothing less. We live by Christ's grace. Look at verses 6 through 9. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers, and not open to change of the charge of debauchery or insubordination, an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent, greedy for gain, but hospital, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as it is taught so that he will be able to give instruction and sound doctrine also to rebuke those who contradict. Those verses I just read, those describe the elders that Paul tells Titus that he is supposed to establish in each of the churches. Each of the churches need godly leadership. And so even as we appoint and recognize elders within this church, those are the characteristics that we, we, we should look for. Not because elders are special in the fact that they should behave differently than the rest, but that those are characteristics of what mature Christianity looks like. Those are what the Christian life ought to look like in a believer who is walking with the Lord. That our life accords with what we believe. It's an agreement. We, we, we live by that same grace that we believe, that we've received. The best test or evaluation, I'll start here, the best test or evaluation of someone's spiritual maturity is not what they say, not the theological test that they can pass, but it's how they live. And not just that they live good, but they live graciously. They live in a way that lives by and lives out God's grace. They believe well, but that believe well overflows into living well. Having believed God's grace, they live in it because many will not. Many in the church will not. Many in Christian circles will want to grab hold, especially in this evil, wicked age in which we live. They'll want to live by another way. Paul says, be careful. They need to be able to refute or rebuke those who contradict. Well, who are the ones that contradict? Look at verse 10. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially of the circumcision party. 
You can go on and read more, but there's something else Paul alludes to in verse 15. He talks about, well, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but their minds and their consciences are defiled. He's talking about even the forbidding of things to eat. This thing I can eat, that thing I can't eat. This is pure, this is impure. This I can touch, that I can't touch. This I could do, that I couldn't do, because this is pure and that is unpure. That living by list, abstaining from certain things that are bad just in in and of themselves. But Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure. Now, he's not talking about a particular evils and sinful things that are certainly as well part of our society. I'm not advocating here a do whatever you want because God is gracious. But oh, we went hiking yesterday. Yesterday and Friday. Friday, Friday and Saturday. Jul, Jul, Julie went backpacking with me. She loves me so much. She went traipsing into the woods after me. And on Friday night, we had in just a little throwback to our days in the south in Biloxi and New Orleans we had red beans and rice but along with our red beans and rice we had nice sliced pork sirloin in there you see and can I tell you it was delicious and it was pure now if I was going to legislate and legalize certain things I can do certain things I can do certain things I can eat and certain things I can't eat we'd have to leave the pork behind and that would have been a pity. But we didn't have to leave the port behind. We could, we could partake of all things, anything that I can give thanks for. And we could give thanks for that lovely, after a day hiking, we could give thanks for that lovely campfire meal, including the pork. To the pure, all things are pure. I have been made pure in Christ, and I don't make myself impure by keeping certain rules about what I eat. There's a Jewish legalism in the background here. And as a church, we don't necessarily... Um, we're not uh, too affected by a a, a Jewish legalism of the first century. But we're still impacted by or affected by that desire that I'll keep certain rules, I'll keep certain lists, and that's how I will keep my life good before God. And it's not true. It's not true. I will not keep my life good before God. I'll find myself right in the middle of that song, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Lord, it's going to have to be by your grace. You take my heart and seal it. You do a work within me. You do a change within me. Lord, I want to live out of what you have said is true. I want your grace that saved me to be the grace that keeps changing us. That you who began a good work in me, as he said in Philippians, will complete it all the way to the day of Christ. You'll keep doing what you're doing. I want to work out my salvation in fear and trembling. Philippians chapter 2, why? Because it is God working in me. Because God is working in me by his grace. Remember that verse I quoted when we were at the table together? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith. It's, it's not of yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. Verse 10 says, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has before ordained that we would walk in them. We will live by God's grace. God's grace that has saved us will overflow out of us into our lives. We will live not by rules and lists. We will live by God's grace. God's grace, his forgiveness that tunes our heart to want to live differently. Now, 
There's an interesting thing in verse 12. One of the Cretans, he says, and a Cretan is simply a person who lives in Crete. Don't, I don't mean something else by that. I wonder if that's where that term comes from, you Cretan. Is that like somebody from Crete? I don't know. One of the Cretans, a person from Crete, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, Paul said. Paul, Paul didn't apparently like people that, that lived on Crete. Well, maybe Paul is simply aware of the culture. Are you aware of ours? What would you say about our culture? There are apparently certain things within the culture that are dangers, that are pitfalls, that are potholes on the road. And Paul's aware of them. And Titus should be aware of them. And everybody in the church should be aware of them so that we can live out God's grace in the midst of those threats to it, of those obstacles to it. In our culture, what would it be? Ours is a culture of entitlement, of materialism, of skepticism, not wanting to believe anything, coming to the point that nothing can be relied on, nobody's promise can be true, but God's is. Only believing what I can see and touch and feel. Materialism. You only get out of life. All you're going to have is what you can grab for yourself. And yet I'm entitled. You know that sense of entitlement that is permeating our culture is the enemy of grace. Because we come up with what God should do. If God's a good God, how could God not do this? that I want done. How could a God do this that I don't think should happen? If God is a good God, I'm entitled for God to do the things that I want Him to do. Because it's all about me. We live in a culture of that kind of, of a sense of entitlement. And while there are many good things that are given to us in this, in this culture, be very careful of the air that we breathe. Very careful that it doesn't argue with us against God's grace that we think we're entitled when, in terms of our standing before God, we are not. The Son is entitled, and I stand there only in Him. So we live by grace. We do not live out of any sense of what we have done, we are to, yet we are to live different. We are to live as unique people for a unique God. We are to live as holy people of the holy God. We, we are really, truly living people of the true and living God. How do we do that? How do we live out God's grace? What does it look like? There are some specifics. You wanted to know, you want, well, what does this touch? What does this bump into? Where will grace have its effect in my life? I'm glad you asked. Chapter 2, verse, uh, st- 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 starting at verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with... A, there, there's that phrase again. See, that started the epistle. What accords with sound truth. But for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine or sound teaching. That word sound, it's, it's health-giving. It's what's going to make, make you healthy and strong and vibrant and viable. What's going to give you strength to walk and stand? This sound, health-giving teaching. What is it that agrees with that? Now, that sound, health-giving teaching, that is the grace of God. That is what God has done for us in Christ. But what is it that agrees with that? That's what he's going to describe now. Older men are to be sober-minded, temperate, clear-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith. That means I know what I believe. I don't just believe whatever he said. Yeah, the pastor said it. I believe it. What did he say? Well, I'm not really sure, but I'm for it. No, no. I understand what God has done for me. 
I, I don't have to be an expert of the Bible to do that. I don't have to answer all the questions and solve all the problems that seem to be. No, I just know whom I've believed. I know what God has done for me. I know what he's promised in Christ. And I'm able to, to remind myself and to share that with others. Sound in the faith. Sound concerning what he believes. Men, that's what we're called to. We're called to know. We're called to believe something that we have some hold upon. And if you're, if you're not quite what you would say sound in the faith, you need to be in the place with other men. The men's Bible studies are going to be starting soon. The, the opportunity to dig in together. There's, there's a couple of men's groups that go right now, including mine on Monday mornings. But wherever it is, however it is, spending time in the Word uh, t- t- together, you and your wife or you and a friend, brother to brother, but getting sound. If you, if you say, well, what could I read alongside the Bible that would help me understand it? There's some books in that, in that shelf in the, in, 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 in the foyer. There's things that I could recommend to you, but let's grow in our faith so that we have a firm ground upon which we stand because our own families and others around us desperately need that. They desperately need that from us. Sound in the faith, sound in love, sound in steadfastness, continuing in the same direction. Continuing to make progress in the same right direction, steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent or holy in behavior, not slanderers, not talking down others. They're not to be slaves to much wine. Well, maybe that's not the greatest issue in our culture today as it was there on Crete. Maybe, maybe we should expand that a little bit just to be uh, maybe um, creatures of comfort, uh, pursuers of pleasure, that we want the finer things and uh, easier life, more comfortable, more showy, more flashy. I don't know what a, a slaves to much wine or other pleasures and comforts. They are to teach what is good and so train the younger women to love their husbands and their children. Older women, do younger women catch that from you? Do they see that in you? Do they, do they see you continuing to model that loving of husband, that loving of children, caring for others, that they can pick up something from you? Things that are much easier caught than taught. Do they see it in you and so that they could learn it from you? They would love their, their husbands and their children. It says they're to be workers at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, so that the word of God is not reviled, but rather that the, that the word of God is, is adorned. The word of God is displayed. The message of God's grace and love and mercy is seen in transformed lives. That's what he's calling for here. That the grace of God that we have received has had its change on us. It has made its mark upon us, and others can see it. Now that workers of home is a, is, a, is a phrase that is of interest today because many women work outside the home. It doesn't say that there are women who don't work outside the home. It says they are women who work at home, which means at the base level, before you try to pack anything else into it, it certainly means that home is still a priority. That women more than men make the home, women are to work at that house being a home. That that place being that refuge for family. Now, it comes to my mind because I grew up in a home with a single mom, and a single mom has that especially difficult, doesn't she? 
to be a worker at home as well as having to work outside the home, oftentimes in long hours because of the demands that are upon the family in that situation. Oh, it's not easy. How does a church family come around and help? How do we as a church family, and I'm, I'm going I'm 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 to dump something on the ladies' ministry to help me with now, help us as elders that we don't overlook women that need to also be working at what's at home, even while they are pulled by responsibility out of the home. How do we help them? How do we care for them? How do we, for those that are working at, out of home but don't need to be as much as maybe they think they do, how do we help them to see what matters more as well? See, there are things that are important here that we will make choices in life and how we make those choices, what we decide is going to set a direction that will impact others. It will have effect on others for better or for worse. This is a passage that doesn't restrain women. Rather, it, it heightens. It heightens what? The, what difference, ladies, your life can make on others, especially those in your own family, especially those children around you or others' children whom you will have influence upon. There are ladies in here that their home is the safe place. Their home is the place because of what they've built into their homes, whether they're working outside or not, but what they've built into their home makes their home a safe place that the other kids, the friends of their kids or other kids around the neighborhood, they go there. It's a safe place. I'd rather have them going, coming home than going somewhere else, wouldn't you? Let our homes be shelters and refuge of grace and acceptance and warmth and love and care that kids are drawn to. Yeah, it talks about younger men as well. Likewise, the younger men be self-controlled. If you could r underscore the Christian life in one word, guys, it would be self-controlled. So much of what's right and wrong, you know. Your conscience tells you. You read it in the Word. You know, and yet we choose anyway. We know what we should do and don't do it. We, 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 we know what we shouldn't do, and yet we still move towards it. Maybe we'll play with it a little bit. Maybe we're going to draw a boundary out there somewhere, but we're going to get a little close to it. And it doesn't work, does it? Even Job said, How could I take fire in my bosom and my clothes not be burned by it? You get too close to the fire, you're going to get singed. You stand around a campfire and guess what? You're going to smell like smoke. Yeah, it'll have its effect on you. Self-control. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching how integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. Oh boy, now he's moving into it. I said that, that we live by grace, not out of works. I said that if we live by grace, we should live out grace. And I said if we're living out grace, what specifically does that mean? And here it comes up already in chapter 2, sound speech that cannot be condemned. Because when we get to, to, verse, or, or to chapter 3, we're going to see that we live out grace by speaking with grace. We live out grace by speaking with grace. Look at chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Okay, that's general. Okay? Be obedient, be ready for every good work. More specifically, how do I drill down? to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, 
to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, we have some visitors, some guests. Right? They're not really visitors. They're simply family that have been away a while. But Ben and Chris Albright are here this morning. And, and uh, Thursday night, I would have found this hard to do. I would, have, I would have found it hard on Thursday night to, to guard my speech in such a way that I, that I didn't offend a devout Packer fan. But somehow, by God's grace, I would have hopefully found a way to do that, right? <laughs> I couldn't resist, Chris. <laughs> but how about, how about the political season? You know what happens in politics today in America, it's said that we're, there, there's more divide, there's more partisanship. Certainly it seems like the conversation has gotten, uh, it, it, the, the sides are more sharply drawn than ever before. Think about how a conversation you might have with somebody who believes different than you politically how easy it is by comments that we routinely make with people whom we think agree with us, how easy it is to make some of those comments and completely shut down a conversation with somebody who saw the issue from a different political direction. That's easy to do, isn't it? The, the, the positions are so hardened, it seemed, at this point, that you need to be very careful and gracious about how you talk about issues if you want to add more light and less heat. Because it's easy, politically, to raise the heat just a little bit by a, by a cutting remark or two that then makes it all personal rather than talking about the real issues that really do matter. Now, I talk about that because the gospel is like that. We are also in an environment today in America that it's harder and harder to talk about the gospel, about faith in Christ in neutral terms. It's hard to talk about the issues around the gospel and, and the, the reality of sin and the brokenness of the human condition and the, the rescue that God has provided us in Christ because of lots of other issues that have been piled on top of that. And if we wade off into the weeds of the various other issues, we can easily shut down the conversation where it matters most, which is concerning Christ. I don't say that we don't talk. And I certainly don't say that we don't talk about things that we need to talk about. And some of those issues actually, but how does an issue of how somebody's lived or a, or a choice of a lifestyle, how do those things relate back to the gospel? And can I talk about it there instead of making side issues the issue? That's what it is to speak graciously. You see, we live by God's grace. When we were rebellious, when we did not agree with him, God pursued us. He called us to himself. He drew us to himself in bonds of love so that we could live out God's grace. And a key aspect of living out God's grace, because we have a story to, to tell as well as to show, a key part of that is to speak with grace. Speak evil of no one, to avoid quarrels, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Why? Verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, Slaves to various passions and, and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, 
He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Why can I be kind and gracious and merciful and understanding to the person who does not believe, who does not act like they believe? Why should they? That would just be hypocrisy. They don't do the things I I should think people should do. They don't behave the way that I think and understand from God's Word that people should behave made in the image of God. And yet, why would I be kind and gracious and, and patient toward them? Because by the grace of God, I'm no different. Except by the grace of God, I'm no different. I have, I have already been grabbed grab hold of by God's grace so that I can reach out and extend it to them as well. There it is. You know, I, I skipped over a passage in chapter 2 because I thought it better actually to close with it. Going back to chapter 2 in verse 11. And I'm going to change the, the, the wording here in verse 11. can almost sound like in the end God's grace is going to save everybody. You've got nothing to worry about. But that's not what it means. The, the word order is, 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 is kind of turned upside down for emphasis. And so let me read it this way. I think I printed it for you in your notes. For the salvation bringing to all men, grace of God has appeared. Think of somebody that you know who you would believe would probably never come to faith in Christ. Somebody who you know of who is, seems so far opposed to God and his grace in Christ that they would never be followers of Jesus. The salvation bringing to all men, even them. That's that's the kind of grace that it is. The salvation bringing to all men, grace of God has appeared. And it teaches us something. It trains us something. Teaching us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. We are between faith in what God has done and hope of what God will do in making all that's wrong right. We're in the middle, caught in the battle. Not struggling, as we sometimes say. I thought of Brian Epp when Ryan used the term. We often use that just to the difficulty like that we're struggling. And yet, as I thought about that, I turned it over my mind. I thought, well, no, I wouldn't describe Brian struggling. I would describe Brian as battling valiantly. And there we are, aren't we? Battling valiantly by God's grace and for God's grace in this present age. Because to us first, and from us to others, the salvation bringing to all men, grace of God has appeared. I want it seen in my life. I want God's grace to rule in my life, to so grab hold of my life that people see something of his grace in me, in you. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you, that, Lord, that by your grace you, 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 you strengthen us. Lord, by your grace, you enable us to live in the midst of an evil and wicked world. Lord, our culture today is no better than it was on Crete. Lord, this is the same fallen world. 
that desperately needs your grace. Father, we, we want to be, Lord, a people who are moved by your grace. We want to be people who are marked by your amazing grace. Father, that out of our lives, not for attention to ourselves, but Lord, the people who are near to us around us, Lord, people that we care about, people that we know, maybe it's people that we need to care about. Lord, we'd put other things aside and out of the way so that these through us might know your amazing grace. Lord, let your grace do its work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As your ushers come forward for this time to receive... The book of Titus tells us that we live by grace. Now, it's often the case in a church this size that there are folks who have been here maybe just today, maybe for a while, and you have been trying to live real hard. You've been working at it, and you know inside you cannot quite get there. I would love to talk to you about living, not by our best efforts, but by living by grace, by having eternal life, not by our works, but by grace. I would love to talk with you more about that. There'll be, there'll be an afternoon together if you're staying for the picnic. I'd love to talk with you about that. And, and then if that's so, if you live by grace, then it's to live out God's grace. I want you to think of somebody. You know that there is somebody that owes you. Somebody that you have a claim against. And I want you this morning, to let it go, to extend them grace. There is somebody that you know that needs to hear from you not words of conflict, not words of confrontation, not words of, uh, of uh, anger, but who needs to hear from you words of grace and upbuilding 
and strengthening and encouraging. Words that remind them something of their Savior. Find the time today to speak with words of grace. Because the salvation bringing to all men grace of God has appeared. May his grace be with you. Amen? Amen. I'm going to give you that time now to greet one another and maybe you'll say, may the grace of God be with you. Maybe that'll be your greeting this morning, but greet one another. I'm going to invite Dave Brown to start making his way up here because we're going to start that very short business meeting in just a moment.